thanks again for joining us on the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad, and I'm the lead pastor here at Hillside. And this is the second special recording of our Know Your Role Bible Study. Through this study, we're taking a look at the role of women in the church in Scripture. This week, we talk about how and how not to read and interpret our Bibles. And we begin the process of unpacking some of the difficult passages in Scripture regarding women in ministry. Session 3 will be available in two weeks. Enjoy the podcast. together, we talked about gender roles in the Bible and women in ministry. We talked about the different viewpoints or philosophies in understanding or in understandings that churches have. We talked about three things, hierarchical, complementarian, and egalitarian. We looked at the passages of scripture that dealt with roles in the church and what they had to say about women being involved. We looked at the position of, of deacon, elder, and pastor. Some seem to include women, and and some that on the surface seem not to. And we looked at what many consider the defining passages for the theology as it relates to women in ministry. Um, I do not permit women to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. That's 2 Timothy 2.12. And women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Passages like this um, seem to paint a pretty black and white picture of what the Bible says about women. Um, There doesn't appear to be a whole lot of wiggle room, um, a whole lot of question or wonder about how women fit into the church. When you read these verses and you just do sort of a cursory read of what they say, women don't. Um, And many churches and denominations leave it there. They look at the seemingly black and whiteness that comes from a text like this and believe that scripture is just simply clear enough. So much so that they will say that potentially any view that is contrary to this is, is actually denying the authority of scripture. Because after all, Paul speaks really clearly on this. Um, However, last time we were together, we also looked at instances in Scripture where God used and put women in places of spiritual authority, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we saw that God spoke about the coming Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit would be given to both men and women. But on the other hand, again, Paul is really, really clear here. I do not permit women to teach or assume authority over a man. So how do we balance these two things? Perhaps these two competing views, how do we reconcile these two ideas together? And so tonight I wanna wanna begin to take a look at some of the passages and and just see what the Bible has to say to us and how we can understand them, how we can interpret them and how we can put them together to, to make some sense of what the Bible says. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about a couple of issues that arise in how we read and interpret scripture. A couple of things that are always important when reading the words of scripture. The Bible will say that, and I pray this, that we as believers need to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. That we need to be able to use and understand our Bible properly. And so I want to talk about three things that we need to know and understand to be able to read, interpret, and understand the Bible correctly. Um, The first one, 
The Bible is not a handbook, owner's manual, or life guide. Now, that might sound heretical or at least run counter to what you've always been told or understood to be true about the Bible. I've heard people say the Bible's like a handbook for life. It's a guidebook for life. Um, but it's not. What I mean is this. You cannot just randomly open the Bible, read a passage or commandment or a verse, and just simply apply that text as a guideline for the entirety of Scripture for your life. If you have a manual or a guidebook, you can just look up whatever you want in an, in an index or a table of contents and find just what it is you're looking for. But that's not how the Bible works, and that's not how the Bible becomes relatable to our lives. It's not simply the words on paper that give them power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that allows Scripture to be applicable to our lives. For the words of Scripture to speak right to our hearts, to our lives, and to a very specific situation. When you've got a huge life decision to make, when you need to be led by the Holy Spirit, it's not just enough to find a Bible verse that seems applicable. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit and have him speak to us through his word. An example, a story from about this, many, many years ago now, Yvonne and I had been approached about planting a church on the campus of Red Deer College. And we really wrestled with what to do. What, what Should we go? Should we move our family? And should we go move up to Red Deer and, and go plant a church on a college campus? But, but we weren't sure what the Lord was leading us to do. It was, it was a really wonderful opportunity, and, and we really weighed it heaven, heavily. Um, but one time, I, I spoke to a, a pastor friend of mine, and he, he said to me, you know, the Bible says... Wherever you put your feet, God will give you that land. And the Bible does say that. Actually, in a number of places, that promise is made. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. But the Bible also says, if you stay in the land where you are, if you stay in the land God has given you, I will bless you. I will build you up and tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. So two verses, both applicable to the situation we're in. So do you stay or do you go? Which verse do you follow? It's not just the existence of a verse that seems to be applicable that gives you the Lord's thoughts on something. Just because the Bible says something that may seem applicable to our situation, wherever we go, God will give us that land doesn't mean that that was from the Lord for us in that particular situation. It's the Holy Spirit that allows that to take place, not just simply the existence of a verse. The, the Bible is not meant to be a step-by-step -step guide on how to live your life. Everything you need for your life and godliness is contained in Scripture. But it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the word of God that makes the difference and allows the words of scripture to become meaningful in our lives today. The second thing that we need to understand about the Bible and, and how we read it and how we understand what's contained in it is this. The Bible is a narrative. The Bible is a story. It's the story of God reconciling his creation back to himself. It's the story of law and our story of the law and sin, and it's the story of grace and forgiveness. But just to look at one passage and say, there, 
That's what the Bible teaches on something. Once and for all, for me, for everyone, can be dangerous. It's not always dangerous, but it can be dangerous. What I mean is this. A friend of mine um, who is a person of color, and, and you'll see why that matters in a second, posted a Bible verse on his Facebook page. And someone who I'm sure is a very nice person responded by posting a couple of verses, I guess, to make him rethink his commitment to God. He posted Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44 through 45, which say, uh, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. The idea, of course, was this. You, you claim to believe in God. You, you profess God's goodness and love and grace and mercy and all of these things. But did you know that the Bible endorses slavery? That, that you know, it was, it was a very conflicting position for him to have to be in. And if you were just to look at a select number of verses in a select number of places, you will discover that, yes, in fact, the Bible does have places where it seems to permit and endorse slavery. But no, in fact, when you look at scripture as a whole, the Bible does not permit us to own people. And so as we read and study scripture, it's crucial to know that all of, the, all of scripture exists inside the larger narrative of who God is, what God has come to do, and the story of sin, forgiveness, and grace. And what this means for us is that when we read something even as simply as black and white as I do not permit women to teach or to have authority over a man, she must be quiet. It's always important to take something like that and look at it in the context of the story of the Bible. This is why the Bible seemingly in one place endorses slavery. And then later on, we'll say there is neither slave nor free. It's either a contradiction or it's part of the story. It's part of the grander story that the Bible's telling. And the last thing that we need to understand about the way we read and understand the Bible is that the Bible was given in a context. Just as scripture, or just as important as always looking at a specific scripture in the light of, of the entirety of scripture is to understand the context that was given in. What are some of the understood things inside of a context of scripture that, were, that are not stated? The story behind the story that will help us understand why something is being said the way that it's being said. The story of the Good Samaritan is a perfect, perfect example of why this is important. You can sort of understand the story of the Good Samaritan without knowing the racial undertones that the Jewish people had toward the Samaritan people. But to understand the full gravity and the seriousness and to understand the true point of the story is to know the cultural context that Jesus was speaking into. And understanding the cultural context of what is said in scripture helps us to understand fully what is being said. Knowing what a Pharisee is helps us understand why Jesus spoke to them the way he did. Knowing about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans helps us understand passages like the Good Samaritan and Jesus and the woman at the well. And understanding cultural context is something that helps us to decide what is applicable to us and what is a verse for more, a more certain situation. All scripture is God-breathed. 
and can and God can speak to us from any verse in scripture. But the specific commandments or the specific themes that are discussed are not always universal for all people at all times. An example, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21 says, Do your best to get here before winter. There are things we can take away from that. Devotion, care, love, the family of God, friendship, commitment. But I don't know that was a command for all of us all the time. That by next winter, we all need to visit the prison cell that Paul wrote 2 Timothy from. That when Paul said, do your best to get here before winter, we, we know and understand he was speaking to a certain, in a certain context. And in that context, made that applicable for that person, but not necessarily for us. When Paul was writing his letter to Timothy, he was not writing him a manual on how to run every church everywhere. That's why he says, do your best to get here before winter. He was writing to his friend to give his friend's and spiritual son some advice on how to run his church. The miracle of the Holy Spirit allows us to take this letter from one friend to another and have it apply to our own lives. But Paul wasn't writing to all churches everywhere with guidelines for everyone. He wrote a letter to his friend. But the miracle of the Holy Spirit allows this letter between friends to be so much more than that. Now, applying cultural context to scripture can also be a double-sided sword. Everything in scripture was given to someone inside of a cultural context, and that person was in a cultural context. The Bible was not written as stuff to be in the Bible. Paul didn't write the letters to Timothy or the church in Corinth or whatever, thinking this is going to be in the Bible one day. He was, they were written into a specific cultural context. But there are some things given in a specific context to a specific person that are for all of us everywhere all the time. We read on Sunday and, and we, 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 we would read in the book of Ephesians when Paul would write, husbands, love your wives. Well, that was more of a first century Jewish thing. We, we don't do that anymore. Well, no, that's bigger than just the cultural context of what Paul's writing about here. It's bigger than just well, that was written to them a long time ago. We know that. Jesus will say, love your neighbor as yourself. God will say, have no other gods before me. The two greatest commandments, love God and love people, are still the two greatest commandments. Some things extend beyond the cultural context. The cultural context is always helpful in informing our understanding of Scripture. But some things go beyond cultural context. Cultural context is always helpful in understanding the completeness of a passage, and cultural context is important to understanding how we interpret and apply a passage to our lives. If a passage is for a certain someone or in a certain situation, and so what we can learn from that, or if it's for everyone everywhere, as we delve into cultural context, it helps us to, to discover, is this do your best to be here before winter? Or is this do you, husbands love your wives? Is this love your neighbor as yourself? And so as we're faced with passages that seem to speak so clearly on an issue like this, we need to do some hard work to discover what's part of the narrative. What's cultural? Is this something intended for all of us everywhere? Or is this something that we can take the principles from and apply to us and see what God is speaking to us 
through them. And to help us understand all of these points, I want to bring us to our first passage that we're going to dig into today. The first place that we're, we're going to, tonight we're going to look at two passages, both from the book of 1 Corinthians. But to understand what we're going to talk about tonight, we need some context. We need some cultural context. Some things to know about the church in the city of Corinth. It was written to people in the city of Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. Corinthians were people from Corinth. But the main context that you need to know about this church is that it was a mess. It was a church of brand new believers, and the believers were really struggling with how to live for God. Some of the behavior that Paul writes to correct them about in 1 Corinthians are things like, they were horribly, horribly divided, to put it mildly, like maybe how the North and the South were divided in the American Civil War. The division in the, in the church is really one of the primary traits that runs through the entire letter, but there was more than just simply cliques or divisions inside the church. Um, some of the other things we discover in this book, they like sex a lot during church. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, that their sexual immorality is not even named among the pagans or the Gentiles. And as you read that verse, what we see is that a guy had an affair with his father's wife, who was also in the church. And this wasn't a point of problem or a point of anger. He wasn't kicked out. He wasn't ostracized. He wasn't even corrected. The next verse tells us he was celebrated. And the reason why he was celebrated is because grace. See? See how we show grace? See the kind of grace we have for one another? See how full of grace we are? That even something as crazy as this can be going on, and we don't care because it's grace. So out of line where the church is thinking about sex that Paul had to talk to the church about how it's a wrong idea to visit prostitutes. He talks to the church about how being married men means that you need to be faithful to your wife, to keep your vows. That if you're married, you shouldn't have a relationship with someone who isn't your spouse, and you shouldn't have a relationship with someone else's spouse, even if you're single. Remember, we, we talked about how Paul isn't writing a handbook. So the things that he says, they're not just good ideas or thoughts about how to run a church. He's not just sort of stream of consciousness. Oh, and, the, yeah, and another thing, just, just be with your spouse, okay? No, what else? Hmm. He's not just coming up with ideas on how to run a church. Paul was having to write about these things because they were very real and true issues inside the church he's writing to. The things he tells them to stop doing or not to do, he's telling them that because they are doing it. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household has informed me that there are quarrels among you, that there are things going on in your midst. They've let me know what's going on, and I feel compelled to write, you, write to you about it. We discover as we read through the book that there were lawsuits flying all over the place in the church as the people in church were suing each other for everything. They were doing communion completely wrong. Because of the divisions and the factions inside the church, they were racing to drink all the wine and eat the bread before the other groups could get any, to the point that people were getting drunk at church 
out of spite for the other groups. That's why Paul gives the instruction in 1 Corinthians that we read when we have communion, when the passage says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus on the same night he was betrayed. The reason why Paul is giving him the, giving those instructions is because they've lost sight on how to do communion. And if you read around that, that's where you discover that this, these were the things that were going on. All this to say, is that there is a litany of issues that this church had. This was just a quick summary of you, or summary for you. It's just to give you a picture of the situation that Paul was writing into. As we look at the first two passages that, first, that come out of 1 Corinthians, you have a baseline for the people that he's writing to. And so with that context, I want to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And a few verses from inside there. Um, these, and we'll all read them and then, and then we'll talk about them. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Judge for yourselves, we jump down to verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. But if, or if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, this passage specifically isn't necessarily for us a no girls allowed passage like what we're going to look at. Um, and in fact, last time we were together, and even this time, we'll, we'll note that Paul here does not correct the women in church for having prominent roles in the church, just the way that they're fulfilling these roles. But we can get a lot of lessons in understanding how we read scripture and how we understand culture and context from these verses. Most people do not read passages like this and see them as a dress code or fashion advice for women today. In fact, most people are, are pretty quick to dismiss a passage like this. That was for them. That was for back then. That was, that's not for us. That was a, a thing for the church back then. That doesn't apply to us today. But what I want to highlight for us here is that Paul is extremely black and white. He's really clear about his expectations and understanding of women and their, their hair length and the same for men. That women should have their head covered. And if they don't have their head covered, they may as well have their head shaved because not having their head covered is like having a shaved head and a shaved head is disgraceful and short hair is bad. And guys with long hair, that's no good either. And so he, he's very clear about this. But only the most hardcore of hardcore legalistic churches might even dare and try to tell women they can't have short hair or that they must come to church with their heads covered. But it's really clear. As clear as I would say about women having authority over men or how women must be silent in church. But one passage everyone will walk away from and say that was for them, not now. But the other passages, like the one we're about to look at a moment, suddenly it's weighty and it's heavy. But I, don't, I want to pause here because I don't want to dismiss this passage and just move on and say, well, yeah, that was for them back then, but who cares? Let's forget it. 
Because there's actually something really important for us to understand. It may not be specifically connected to hair length, but I believe that just like in the other passages we'll look at, there's depth and there's a lesson to be understood here. So what can we learn from what Paul says here? First, we know and we can see that the culture back then was very different than ours today. But second, what we need to know is that the culture back then wasn't all that different from the culture of today, just the way they lived it out. See, at, at this time in Corinth and really everywhere in the world, all of the churches at the time, they were home churches. They, they were run out of people's houses. There were no church buildings. And I'm sure for many of us, the way that we carry ourselves at home, the way we look, the way we dress, when we're just hanging around the house, is perhaps somewhat different than how we carry ourselves, how we dress, how we, how we put ourselves together when we go to, let's say, church. The way that we handle ourselves and carry ourselves on a Saturday when we know we're not going anywhere, nobody's coming over, and we're going to get some yard work done or whatever it may be, having a lazy Saturday at home, is different, I would assume, for most of us, most everybody, than how we would carry ourselves when we would go to church, that we would probably get up a little more when we went to church. Well, it's not so for the Corinthians. We've talked about how they misunderstood grace and what it meant to be free. And without knowing it, here we're walking into another example of this. But without knowing what's happening here, we can read a passage like this and think it's it, it, the takeaway is long hair for girls and short hair for boys. But what's happening is much deeper than that. Culturally at the time, for a woman to go out without her head covered in traditional clothing was a little casual. In fact, culturally, it was one of the primary ways of indicating that you were a prostitute. That that's how that would be communicated to the world around you. That you would go out without your head covered. Probably now, or now around your own home, no big deal. You're not worried about that kind of cultural confusion inside your own home. You at home, you're free to not have your head covered. But when you go out in public... It's a pretty big deal to have your head covered. Probably today, it would be the equivalent of going around your house in just your underwear. And then going to church in just your underwear. The people in the church in Corinth so misunderstood grace, freedom, community, and all of that, that they treated church like it was just bumming around the house for them. Nothing special, no big deal. And Paul is writing them to say to them, guys, this isn't what we're supposed to do for the Lord. This isn't the way we carry ourselves for the Lord. We want to bring a honor and respect to the Lord. Scripture says, those who approach me must regard me as holy. And when you're just bumming around the house, not caring, that's not what God has for us. All of the comments in these verses about short hair versus long hair, men's heads covered versus women's uncovered, all that, all of it is about being culturally sensitive. And we understand this and we accept this. We don't look down on women for having short hair. And we don't look at them, a woman with short hair, and say she's spiritually immature or she's a weak Christian because of it. 
or that she's stealing God's glory, or that it's inappropriate or wrong for women to come to church without their heads covered. We don't stop people from coming in because their heads aren't covered. We don't insist that if you want to come and be a part of our service as a woman, you need to have your head covered. Nobody will really do that. We understand that Paul was speaking to something more cultural, but that also doesn't mean that we cannot get anything from that. See, we can understand this passage and we don't need to just move past it, but we understand that God is worthy of not just our bumming around. But as I said, those who approach him must regard him as holy. Let's not become casual with the things of God. We read in the Old Testament about two priests who died because they came complacent in, in the, or they had become complacent in the presence of God. Now, grace allows for us not to live with that kind of pressure, worry, or fear. But that doesn't mean that we lose our reverence for God entirely. And so when Paul's talking about this, it's not a dissertation for us today about how short our hair is or how long our hair is or should we wear a head covering, but it's a charge to us to not become complacent. It's a charge to us to not somehow lose the reverence that we have for God and for the things of God. This was not about the value of men and women or, or that men can do things that women can't. It's about making sure that they were doing things in a way that kept things proper. It was about making sure things were done right, that things were done the way that they should be. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. We can read a passage like this, and it can be very tempting to just say, oh, cultural context and move on. But all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. And so there is something for us to understand in the context of these verses. So we can discover that, that we're called to be reverent. Now let's move on to some bigger fish. Let's move on to, to a scripture that is, is more fundamental in, in the understanding of the role of women in the church. If you're following in your Bibles, you can turn a couple pages over. We're going to just move a couple chapters later to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. There's really two verses that show up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. And these are, these are crux verses. These are verses that when you talk about our views of women in the church and how they're seen, how they're perceived and how they're understood. These are two of the verses that people will immediately go to, to talk about what the Bible has to say. So let's read them together. First Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. That seems pretty clear. I guess we're done. War not. But if we look again, if we look at things in context, both for the book of First Corinthians, for the preceding chapters in the book of First Corinthians, and for the church in Corinth as a whole, we will hopefully be able to shed some light on this. So we need to begin 
by looking at the things, the themes that Paul has been speaking about. So we go back a couple of chapters, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul has spent the last few chapters from 1 Corinthians 12, takes a little detour in 13, but then brings it back to 14. But 13 is connected in there. But first Corinthians, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he begins to unpack for us this concept of spiritual gifts what the gifts of the spirit are. And then in verse Corinthians, in chapter 13, he speaks about how we're to use those gifts as motivated by love. But he begins by unpacking all of, all of the gifts of the spirit, explaining them and, and at least giving highlight to all of them. Then he'll say that we're to use them in love. And then we come to verse chapter, or chapter 14. We'll talk about that in a sec. But what you discover is as you read through 1 Corinthians 14, it seems as if the church in Corinth wasn't ignorant of the gifts of the Spirit. But rather, they were very, very well versed in using their spiritual gifts. Perhaps too well versed. As Paul has to bring some correction and some discipline to the structure of their services. Paul writes extensively about order and about church not being a place of chaos. As you read through 1 Corinthians 14, he will talk about have only one or two people prophesy. Have people, if they want to give a word, they need to come in order, that we need to do things orderly. That we And he will talk about how, in, if, you, if you read through 1 Corinthians 14, he will talk about how they're the only church that's like this, that, that the other churches aren't acting like this, that this is a problem unique. To the church in Corinth. Paul has to bring some correction and some discipline to the structure of their services. He writes extensively about the church not being a place of chaos, that God is a God of order, he will say, and that your services need to, to make sense, that if all you're having is people jumping up and speaking in tongues and yelling and nobody can understand anything, that that's not for the benefit of anyone. But we need to do things in a way that allows for everyone to be a part, for everyone to participate, and for everyone to get something out of this. What we discover is that it seemed as if the church was engaging in a sort of Holy Spirit one-upsmanship. Someone would, would stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord, and begin to share their word from the Lord. Or someone would, would begin to speak in tongues, and, and then that would spark someone else to hear someone say, I've got a word from the Lord. And someone else would jump up and remember, they're, they're divided. They're, they're a church with, with massive cliques against each other. And so one person would stand up and say, I've got a word from the Lord. And someone else in another clique would jump up and begin to share their word from the Lord louder than the other person because they didn't want to hear what they had to say. And someone else would jump up and start yelling in tongue. And it was just this chaotic scene of people yelling. Yeah, well, I've got a word too, or I'm going to speak in tongues too. And, and they would come together for church, but it would quickly devolve into this, this crazed state. And so this is what chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is all about. That Paul is bringing correction to the way that they're doing church. This chaotic scene of church where people are prophesying and speaking in tongues and things are, are going off the rails really, really crazy. And in the middle of this chaos, in the middle of these couple of verses, or in the middle of all this chaos, we find these couple of verses about women being silent and asking their husbands at home later. 
So it seems as if Paul was specifically addressing a problem within the Corinthian church of women who were doing something inside of church that were disrupting the worship gatherings, that the context of this entire discourse is your worship gatherings are out of control. And Paul doesn't bring this to a place where he says, oh yeah, and another thing, I heard there's women talking there. Tell them not to do that. It's in the context of all of this chaos. And in the middle of this chaos, we find these couple of verses. But to understand these verses properly, one of the things that we need to look at is the word used for speak here. Um, because it's not just that the women had questions, that it wasn't just that somehow a woman would raise her hand and say, I'm sorry, pastor, I missed that verse. And Paul would say, tell them to be quiet. But that's, that's not what was wondering, that there wasn't questions or wonderings didn't, during the service and didn't know where to have them. But when we read and, and when we translate, we sometimes have issues with the way that we have to translate because sometimes there's not quite a word that fits in English or, or sometimes we, we choose a word because we like it better. Sometimes we choose it because we think it fits better. But when you look at the word that's used for speak here, the word is, is that, um, I don't know how to say it. I forgot to write down my pronunciation guide. It's not laleo, um, but it's, it's something along those lines. But the word that's used here, it has a... Uh, the word that's used here, it has more of a sense of, of the word argue or to chatter. That, that the word that's used here, it's not the word for argue. But when we understand the word, what we see is that it has more to do with argue, or the best way that you could probably describe it would be the word to chatter, that, that people were chattering, you know, when, when you talk about somebody being a chatterbox, that, that they talk, but it's not just that they talk, but that they natter, that they talk, 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 that, that that's kind of the, 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 the word that's being used here. Now... All we're given is these two verses. Paul doesn't go into any more depth on to how or what these verses or what these women were saying. We don't get any idea of, of the kind of disruption. All we know is that from what Paul had to say, that, that what was taking place, the chattering that was taking place inside this church needed to stop. So we can only speculate about the type of questions that were being asked and, and the way that they were being asked. But it seems in the midst of the service, people in the midst of the service where people are fighting and they're getting drunk, many of the women were prone to asking questions, arguing with each other, with maybe arguing with their husbands, chattering away, or perhaps even that sort of like, hey, Doug, can you believe this nonsense? Can you believe them? Can you believe what it is that they're saying, what they're talking about? Can you believe he thought that was a word from the Lord? That, that there was this sense of, of not just women asking questions and talking during church, but that there was part, it was all part and parcel of all of this chaos. And so Paul, I would contend, 
Or in, in the culture of the day, sorry, I missed this too. In the culture of the day, it was also more than likely that the men and women were not seated together, that the women would have been seated on one side of the room, men on the other side. And so if they wanted to talk to their husband, they would have to stand up and yell across the room to, to speak to their husband if that was the argument that was going on. Um, but, but so all of these things come into to play as we understand that, that it wasn't just that women were, were speaking during church, but they were chattering away during church. They were argumentative during church. And what I believe is that these verses were, were intended as, as not a new command or a law or a principle about women not being allowed to contribute in church. Because remember, the, the passage that we just read, the, the short hair, long hair passage, Paul talks about women praying and prophesying in church and doesn't say anything against it. This is the same church. This is the same letter where Paul doesn't say, if a woman wants to prophesy in or pray in church, tell her no. Just a few, you know, a few hundred words earlier, he says, if a woman wants to pray or prophesy in the service, she should do it properly with respect and reverence. And he specifically highlights the casualness with what with what's being done. He doesn't say in First Corinthians 11, tell them, tell them they're not allowed to do that. He says, tell them to do it properly. He gives them instruction on how to do it. And so I believe these verses were intended as a pastoral correction to some women inside of a wild church. This was not meant to be a censorship of women who were trying to minister properly inside of a church service. Paul wasn't attempting to create a new law forbidding women from making sound in the service. And actually, when we read through those verses, um, there's an interesting note where, where in verse 34, Paul will say, women should remain silent in the church. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Um, no one knows what that phrase, as the law says, is referring to. Um, because it's not the Old Testament law, because there is no law concerning that in the Old Testament. And so we don't know what it is that Paul is necessarily referring to, specific to women being quiet. Now, quarreling, argumentativeness, all of those kinds of things certainly show up in the law. But there is no specific law that says women are not allowed to, to speak in church, partly because church was a brand new institution. That, that that Paul, if you know anything about Paul's reading and or Paul's writing, you discover he is very sure that we are not under the law, but we are now under grace. And so he wouldn't be holding women to this standard of this law, even if it did show up in the law. But Paul was very clear, we're not under the law, we're under grace. So nobody actually really knows what Paul is referring to when he says that. This passage was not meant to stop women from contributing. It was written, I believe, to restrain a pattern of disruption that was taking place inside the church. Now, the other part of this question, or the other part of this verse, that some people can have questions that can lead people to wonder, that can lead people to have different thoughts about women and men and their roles in each other's lives, um, Paul will tell the women not to speak, but to ask their husbands at home, to go home and ask your husband. 
Now, why, why does he tell them that? Um, and I believe that, that there's two, two reasons for this. The first is to say that if you really have a question, and not just an argument or a disruption, ask it at home. That is, so if, if, if you really are struggling with what's going on, don't disrupt the service, not because asking questions are wrong, but because the service is already so disrupted. Ask it at home. And the reason to ask their husband is the men of the day would have been educated, whereas women were not given that opportunity. So maybe your husband can answer that for you. Maybe your husband, who's actually had the opportunity to go to school, may be able to answer that question for you. But if it's a real question, go and talk to your, your, your spouse about it. Go and talk to your husband about it when you, when you get home. And the other reason, I think, is because if it's not an actual question, if it's just a gossip, if it's just a fight, if it's just a chatter, if it's just a nanner, if it's just to do all of those things, Save it for home. Remember back to the first passage we looked at at 1 Corinthians. I believe there's a connection here. It's not about short hair. It's about making sure we're treating the presence of God the way that it should be. It's not about whether or not women should be able to speak in church, but it's about making sure that the way that women or anybody, but in this church at this time, specifically women, making sure that they're treating the presence of God, that they're treating God with the reverence that he deserves. And so that's our look at two passages from the book of 1 Corinthians this week. Um, next week, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to go to we're going to go or we're going to go into breakdown. We're going to go into and break down and take apart the passage in First Timothy that usually serves as the backbone of the discussion of this for a lot of people. When Paul will say, "I do not permit women to have authority over men," um, we're going to right from the jump dive into that and it's going to be long i mean not longer than it's still we're only going to be together for about an hour but it's going to be detailed it's going to be a lot of greek it's going to be a lot of context it's going to be a lot of understanding the reason why paul is writing this letter to his friend and to his spiritual son timothy and so we're going to dive deep into that and then second, to close off our time, you know, that'll probably be about 45 minutes of the hour that we're together. Um, but the last thing that we're going to do next time is we're going to take a look at some of the verses that, that I think support the egalitarian view of church. Thanks for listening to this message from Hillside Church. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Hillside Church, there are a couple places you can go. Hillsideairdrie.ca is our website, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hillside Airdrie. You can also look us up on YouTube and find all of our messages on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to connect to the pastoral team at Hillside, you can do that through our website, hillsideairdrie.ca, and click on About Us in the main menu, and then click on Our Pastors. We're so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Hillside Church, we are a family, not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. As family we go.